Like I have this kind of the way I think about how do I prioritize what task I do is I kind of look at um, three different components. Um, the first one is frequency. How often is the task run? Um, if you're running it all the time, then you're probably going to want to get more of a return on your investment for automating it, um, which ties into the second one, which is complexity. Is it really hard to um, to automate? Um, because if it's really hard to automate, then you're going to be spending a lot more time developing, you know, the edge cases and things like that. So you need to kind of rate it on those two spectrums. And then the third one is criticality, which is, is this a super critical component of managing a database? Um, if I don't do this task, will it come back to bite me later? Um, and so if you can rate those, I kind of, you know, on a, on a matrix, so it, takes a little bit of you know forethought and evaluation on your part to say am i really going to get my bang for buck out of out of automating this particular task is it going to be too much and then you can look at it and say you know what i'm not going to but i'm going to do partially automation like I, there are pieces of this that i can automate with something like ansible when we talk about, you know, whether it's high availability or backups, typically we have a recommendation and th that recommendation, what is that? Yeah, well, yeah, well, we recommend uh, and we extensively use Patroni for the high availability solution, right, Jobin? Yes, yes. And for the backups, our preference is PG Backrest. Uh, although right. we actually do support a few other tools as well. And I actually wanted to pick up on what Jobim said previously, because I actually switched from Oracle to PostgreSQL in 2015. And I was in the same position as a lot of people are now. And so uh, it is like actually beneficial for me at the position I have right now to have walked the walk, a walk like five okay. years ago. So uh, switching from Oracle, like you have an R-man, right? But then on PostgreSQL <laughs> side, you have Barman, which sounds similar, but it's not Arman actually, right? Then you have PG Backrest and quite a lot of different projects. And then there are forks of projects. The Wall E was rewritten as Wall G, and it's an excellent project, but the and everything is yeah, it's a bit of an like it's a bit of open source in the good and the bad uh, that that entails. Like the documentation might be lacking sometimes, and you have to uh go and try the waters basically quite a lot um yeah but so far in the last five years and six years the infrastructure and everything every project matured and uh it's like right now i think it is easier than ever to do the switch postgres is claiming to be the most feature rich um uh, so We'll, we'll, we'll get more overlap with Oracle in terms of uh, stored procedures and uh, functions. Um, uh, say the PL PG SQL, which we have in Postgres, is somewhat similar to 
uh, oracle's plsql code so my the and we have very rich data types um, so all those things are um, driving the migration um, the the, the sele selection comes automatically to postgres but yeah the surprises like uh, uh, something which was working in uh, oracle um, uh, is working poor in uh, postgres that's a common very common uh, problem and that happens when we when we move from uh, oracle to postgres or if we move from uh, postgres to oracle because these two things are entirely different when we have an application which is fine tuned for oracle um, and if you just take that code and put it into uh, postgres uh, that may hit on some other uh, edge cases like uh, sergey mentioned um, the mvcc is one major uh, difference so in, in in oracle we have this undo area the, where they move the old old images to an undo space and that's how they manage the, their mvcc but in postgres we leave that on the same place the old versions are left on the same place where it, uh, where the data is stored so the, the consequence is the inserts are fast so because insert don't have to do anything it is it is uh, create another raw and put it there but the the demerit of this approach is uh, the updates are costly yeah so for postgres as you mentioned it was uh, one of the missing pieces in our puzzle right so we have mysql we have mongo and we have postgres as the kind of company we have distributions for mysql mongo and Postgres, right? Yes. And uh, we also have operators for MySQL and Mongo, but we never had anything for Postgres. So definitely we wanted to add one. And we chose Crunchy Data Operator as the base for our Worker Operator. So now we forked it and we are committing also our changes to the upstream, to Crunchy, as they are also open source folks. And uh, I'm pretty excited about that, right? Right now, during Bitcoin Live, we released it as a technical preview, and uh, it's going to be GA uh, somewhere in August. And uh, for us, what means GA, it's going to have the same look and feel as other operators that we have for MySQL and Mongo. So it will be a seamless experience. Uh, crunchy data operator, which we're basing our operator on, is quite feature-rich and it is production ready so all the features that they have we can already use in our operator and on top of that we need something from us like pmm integration some customizations that we used to have but more or less the parity is there and uh, we're gonna get closer to it and uh, make all our operators aligned postgres as well as mysql these are pre-alt technologies which are not cloud native ready, which were never intended to run on Kubernetes. So there is obviously a challenge to make it work on Kubernetes. We are, we are currently working with a, with a very sizable client where they're, where we are in charge of their testing environment. So they hired us on to, to, to fix their testing environment because their developers were really in trouble because the internal team cares about the production environment, of course. The, that's what brings in the money. What 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 makes the revenue? Um, so so keeping production running is, is is their prime target and their prime concern. But the testing environment is equally important because if the if the testing environment is, is like down for a day, they might have 
X number of developers sitting there twiddling their thumbs because yeah, we, we can't we can't work because the database is down, the testing database, and and even it goes one step further because they have all of their all of their systems are replicated in their testing environment, and then they start while they're developing, they they just need their own database to talk to, but once they start going into integration testing and running their CI pipeline um, to see if their change will actually work in, in the rest of the ecosystem, then there might be a database down somewhere on the other end of the system, which breaks their pipeline and then they're still stuck. So it's a, it's a challenging task uh, to, to, to do proper testing, to do proper um, uh, setup of, of your, of your environments, but yeah, it, it's, it's really necessary. And yeah, testing costs money. Backups cost money, um, uh, but in the end, if you don't have backups and you have a disaster like that, that customer that I that I talked about with the ransomware, they went out of business because yeah, they lost all their data, so they, they, they couldn't yeah, they couldn't provide anything to their customers anymore, so they just they just went bankrupt. Yeah, I, in fact, I just gave a talk at Postgres Vision. Um, I guess it was Tuesday. Uh, talking about data horizons because with Postgres, because you know, in in the early days, data was coming into a database either through punch cards or dumb terminals um, or teletype, you know, the old way back. Uh, but then, if you look at the data ingestion methods that people have now, it's you know, it's web browsers, it's mobile apps, it's it's GIS data, GPS data, it's it's telemetry. Internet of Things, um, social media, right? And you need analytics to come out of it too. Um, so the idea that am I going to be able to use the same database for GIS as I'm using for JSON, as I'm using for full text search, as I'm using for Internet of Things, right? Um, a lot of relational systems just can't handle that. If they can't, then you end up with all these separate data sources. But then you've got to you've got to govern those data sources. You've got to figure out how to integrate them. You've got to figure out how to have them backed up consistently. You got to uh, figure out how to delete the old data you don't want anymore. So it, yeah. you get that data silo problem, which I've heard a number of people complain about. Um, and one of my interesting talks, aspects of the talk I gave was to try and say the Postgres being object relational and having, you know, special abilities, special indexing, special data types, and so forth for GIS, for JSON, for full text search, for uh, you know, high ingestion data. So you've got you've got now got a database which is relational, but it knows how to it has specially code to handle a lot of these other things, and it does a lot of the problems do go away. You, you don't have as much of an integration. There's this like alternate universe where there's like a good enterprise and a bad. Oh, the mirror enterprise. Yeah, universe. Universe. Right. yeah, yeah. The, the bad, yeah, yeah. bad Spock, whatever. And, oh yeah, yeah. And the good people go to the bad enterprise and they kind of function and they figure out how to get back to the good enterprise um and when they get back to the good enterprise they're like what happened to the bad guys the bad enterprise guys and he said they went back at the same time or whatever you as good people could act bad but the bad people had no idea how to act good right um and in a lot of ways sql and relational systems they can be they can be modified pretty easily to give a very simple api to give a very clean, you know, interface to, you know, to people who need a very streamlined way of getting at their data. <clears throat> On the other hand, it's very hard for a simple system 
to add an SQL relational capability to it. So I, I would argue that Postgres bringing in JSON, GIS, you know, these these other new data sources happens pretty pretty easily. We don't really have to strain very much to yeah. do it, particularly because we're an object relational system. So it was designed to be sort of add indexing, add data types and stuff, add operators and languages. Um, so it's actually really easy for us to kind of bring in the simple stuff. It's a lot harder for a simple thing to try and bring in transactions and, and uh, um, you know, global consistency and snapshots and, and, and in a language, I guess, that, that's, a, that's really hard. Um, and it happens, you know, sometimes they're successful, sometimes they're not. Um, but it, it's a lot harder to go the other way. What's interesting is that we see that kind of lack of interest in the industry where they're like, well, I need to get this task done. Management says, hey, we're not shipping tests, we're shipping production code, so why are you wasting your time on tests? Developers are like, well, I just need to get it done, let me just do it. And then we end up with content that is, well, less tested. Now, in some cases, that's totally fine. The purpose of testing is about risk mitigation. And so if the risk is low, then maybe not having tests was sufficient and dealing with production outages when there's a crisis is completely sufficient and that was worth the investment. On the other hand, we may want to reduce that risk. We may want to have some smoke tests, some integration tests. We may have a particularly hairy function and we want to understand that this function works correctly in all of the scenarios that we're working with it. Taking a step back, we may have a piece of a functionality, a microservice, or a unit of content. And we may, we may want to validate that this works correctly. We can look at it from a UI perspective and say, I want to validate that this website or even this component works the way I expect. Or from the other side, the API, we may want to say, hey, I want to make sure that this API, given these inputs, creates this output. We could even do unit tests around databases to say, if I have this data in the table, that this stored procedure will validate, will run in an in a expected way and that we validate the results in this way. So if it makes sense to reduce that risk, then unit tests can be a really elegant mechanism to be able to validate that. Now, a lot of people now, will say, hey, I've got these tests and, and it's really slowing me down. I would turn that on its head and say, a lot of the time that you're spending is debugging. I'm curious if, you know, as someone who goes out and tries to educate folks, is there something that if, if people could take away from this chat or take away from one of your presentations, just one thing, one thing they could learn and maybe change their habits, change what they're doing, try something new. What would that one thing be like? What, 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 what would you say? Like, please learn this thing. Please do this thing differently. Please, you know, you know, try this new technology. What, what do you think? What is the one thing that I would teach you? Yes, coming out of this, like we're here on stage and we've been doing it for a while, but there is nothing magic about either you or I or even the listener. There's nothing magic about you. We here have just been at it a little longer, but the skills that we have are completely attainable. You, the listener, the watcher, you can get to where we are and you can exceed us. The beauty of this path is it's just about learning and experimenting and doing. 
The next step is yours. You can go do wonderful things. You can go experiment with this technology. You can go find that passionate project that you want to do. You can have a lot of fun with technology. There is nothing that is unattainable about anything that we've talked about today or anything that you saw at the conference. You can take this step and you can be awesome. We definitely have a huge footprint if you look at Uber's business and the amount of rides you're doing, the amount of orders that are going through and getting processed through the system. If you look at Uber Eats, for example. So yeah, we have to deal with the massive amount of data. We have to deal with the massive amount of QPS. And that automatically means that we have a massive uh, infrastructure footprint as well. And that again is the reason I was mentioning that we, we have moved away from the uh, individual DB mindset because at, at this scale, it's not really possible for us for, for to have human operators that are that are humanly managing all of the systems. We need to have systems in place that are self-managed, right? And uh, that's where we are going with what we're developing uh, Uber. That's exactly why we started uh, DocStore as well. And uh, to your point about uh, all of these microservices and how there's a shift uh, from moving from monolithic to microservice architecture, that's one part of the boom for distributed databases. The other part is the amount of data that gets processed these days, right? No one thinks about no one thinks about how much data they want to store because the storage is kind of cheap, right? So yes. uh, th that was another that's another reason why we invested in DocStore is you wanted to build a system that can stick, scale with the application that can work on small data set, medium data set to very large data set and uh, 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 prevent having the user to have to migrate from one offering to another, right? Which is, uh, and let, just let them focus on whatever their business logic is. So DocStore has been designed as a multi-model database. Uh, it provides best of both the worlds. When I say both the worlds, uh, you think of a relational world and the, a relational world and the document world, right? It provides the same level of flexibility that you would get from a document model. And at the same time, the same type of structured approach that you will see in a relational model. Uh, we, when we thought about building DocStore, we did not want to enforce any restrictions in terms of what kind of data model the applications are going to use because we really wanted to build a database that can serve almost all of the use case, operational uh, database use cases at Uber, right? So we wanted to, uh, so we wanted to support a wide variety of data models, whether it's a relational model, it's a hierarchical model, or it's a document model similar to, similar to MongoDB. Uh, from a technical perspective, it's a distributed database. Uh, that's built on top of uh, MySQL. We use MySQL as a storage engine. And uh, on top of that, we have a data distribution layer uh, that's responsible for sharding the data set, then uh, query processing layer and, and a caching layer. When we started this uh, doc store, a few things we kept in mind is like what type of functionality that we need to support. And there we talked to multiple users and there we figured out that okay this database itself has to accommodate few functionalities like transactions and then consistency which is very important for our developers as well and there we implemented raft protocol to ensure transactions are durable across the quorum number of nodes and then we have uh, different layers as always mentioned like how to route these requests how to provide these client drivers to our users because uh, in Uber we have Go and Java, so we need to ensure that we have metrics for both. Um, I've worked with open source kind of projects throughout my career, but I really wanted the experience of, of you know, um, working with uh, a really uh, interesting thing and, and trying to get contrib contributors and that sort of thing. So in my role as a developer advocate, I have kind of a, a split um, responsibility. 
One, it's to make sure people who are interested in, um, you know, open search, get what they need. Like, how do they get the resources they need? Um, is the product delivering what they need? Um, and so I kind of work as that bridge between the developers who are using it and those who are um, who are wanting and developing it. And then also my other responsibility is about contributors and getting people to contribute to um, the, the software as well. So uh, getting people the resources that they might need to, to get started. When I joined, there was probably like 500 people, which was a few years ago. Now there's over 2,000 uh, people wow. in this. Yeah, really active community. And, um, you know, there are, as you in indicated, there's lots of organizations that are that are hiring, um, you know, for, for more developer advocates. So if you're interested in this, basically, you know, the kind of ingredients to be a developer advocate is you, you want, need to know your stuff, right? You need to be able to learn quickly um, because you may get a job and that is not something that you're fully familiar with, right? Um, so maybe you're, you're relatively new to it, so you have to dive in and be able to get there. Um, and then you need to be open to talking to people. Um, you know, it's it's really a people person type of role um, that has uh, technology as its kind of background, right? Um, so, um, it, you know, it, it's thinking about communication and communication with developers and being empathetic to what they need is, is are key components to, um, you know, being a developer advocate. In the beginning, there was Elasticsearch, right? And Kibana. And, um, there was multiple different ways you could get that, right? Elasticsearch and Kibana both are pluggable architectures. So they built a series of plugins. AWS built a series of plugins and released them as open source. And then packaged this all together with an installer and a couple other tools and called it Open Distro for Elasticsearch, somewhat similar to a Linux distribution. So that existed for a while, you know, and, and then in January of 2021, we were in a meeting and one of the developer uh, managers in, on Open Distro said, hey, uh, there was a blog post uh, posted the other this morning, and it said that there's going to be a license change on Elasticsearch. And come to find out, you know, Elastic uh, changed the license to uh, a proprietary license, SSPL or the Elastic license. Um, and that meant that Open Distro was not something that was possible um, any, to be developed anymore. Um, there was no base for that. Uh, so after Elasticsearch 7.10.2, the license was changed to this uh, dual license between the Elastic license and SSPL, which both are not open source licenses. They're proprietary licenses. They may be defined as source available, but they're not open source by the open source definition. After a lot of deliberation, um, the decision was made at AWS to say, you know, we're going to stick a bunch of engineers at this and let's create a purely open source fork of Elasticsearch and Kibana. And Elasticsearch became OpenSearch and uh, Kibana became OpenSearch dashboards. Um, and so combining those together with the plugins, you have this new kind of stack out here that has um, you know, all the great features that you would expect. Um, some are quite premium features um, that, that you know, um, other organizations charge money for. Um, and uh, you know, now you have it all as an open source. You know, when I, when I got interested in free software and open source back in 19, 1998, uh, so 10 years prior, um, I had never really experienced a lot of community, right? Beyond going to my local metal bar and seeing bands with my friends, um, which was a community in itself, but it was more of just a bunch of mates hanging out. Um, um, and so therefore I associated community with open source and free software. And it took me 10 years to realize that is not the norm. Like what we have in the open source free software world 
is weird. Most communities aren't like that <laughs> in any shape or semblance of the word. You know, like the idea that, I mean, you've probably seen this, the amount of times um, someone just has an idea and then just starts building it, right, is in itself an unusual concept. That's a good example of free software and open source in action. Someone has a random idea and then you just go and build it. And, you know, if you've got, if you want to build a community around, you know, conservation or, you know, around, uh, I don't know, merchandising or, or around music or anything else, it's not as easy to generate the thing that brings people together, you know? And that's one of the things that's so unique about free software and open source. And other companies are now, and other organizations have seen the power of, of community, but we have to do it in a different way. We can't just replicate the principles within the open source world. They don't just carbon copy move over to these other areas, so. I think that we have a, a disease that is um, spreading around the world uh, and it is data fetishism. There is an obsession right now with trying to measure all of the things. And there is a trendiness around creating these insane analytics dashboards that measure every conceivable thing that can change in a community, an open source project, whatever else. And the idea is that, or the justification for this is if we measure everything, then if we ever need to reference that data, we've got it and we can evaluate it. And, and that gives, that's a useful tool that we can use. But to me, that is no different to buying a bomb shelter and filling it with macaroni and cheese in the case that there is a zombie apocalypse occurs, right? It's, 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 it's work that ultimately will rarely actually be useful later on. So the way I look at it is, there's two pieces to this. There's what do you measure and then how do you measure it? And I think the first thing we need to differentiate between is like, what do we measure uh, and what are the most important things to measure, right? So the one thing that's been bandied around in recent years is the ROI of community, the return on investment of community. Um, and I think it's a misnomer. Um, and the reason why is because uh, the real value of community and the reason why they're so magical, and I don't, I'm not using that in an overly kind of poetic sense. Communities really are genuinely magical because they bring together the best of what makes us human beings. So the, the magic of communities is immeasurable. My understanding of NewSQL is really combined the advantages of the relational database, which has a transaction capability and the SQL interface, right? and the scalability of NoSQL, right? Because NoSQL uh, excels at scaling. It's pretty easy to scale. You can add uh, nodes and you can handle more, can store more data and handle more uh, traffic, right? That is kind of what NoSQL excels at. Whereas for traditional relational database, you have the transactions, right? This, this simplifies a lot uh, uh, to developers because they can safely retry when something fails. Whereas if you don't support transaction, then you have to uh, do a lot of additional work in order to make things correct. Yeah, and that's one point. And the other thing is that a SQL is much easier, right? It's very expressive. So I think with the new SQL, uh, the sharding is transparent to the user and the, the user still thinks you are working with a single node database. But the database underlying can be scalable. You can add new nodes and uh, then you can move the data around and uh, automatically and by adding new nodes you can scale 
uh, the database uh, of serving more traffic and store more data. So I think uh, overall from the benefits to the developer is that first of all, they're still working with SQL and they're still mostly thinking with a single node database. And then they have a like higher developer velocity. And from the maintenance point of view, and you don't need to manage the sharding and uh, and I think that is uh, kind of the benefits. Uh, people used to opt for it in order to reduce their costs. That was a primary driving factor. Um, I would say that that's not the only reason. That may not even be the primary reason anymore. Um, it's, it's that year-over-year -year addition of features uh, that Postgres continues to have uh, that's primarily driven by demand of its users. Um, and then I would also say that as the ecosystem matures itself, as various commercial companies start to build business around the project, um, they start pumping money um, into the promotion um, and into the development of features and tools to use the database. Uh, and I think that is a, a big contributing factor as well. Um, and then maybe there's a third angle to it as well, that uh, maybe the environment and the fact that um, some of the other databases that may not be as pure open source as Postgres is, uh, or maybe driven by, by certain corporate interests, um, as, as they evolve and as uh, corporate interests or vested interests uh, you know, um, come into play into the development efforts and into licensing, people get put off and they choose uh, you know, more, more liberal licenses, more liberal communities. And that may be, you know, uh, that may be another reason why uh, Postgres uh, becomes more popular uh, over time. So I guess you know, it's, the, it's the acceleration of all, all different factors combined that, that contributes to, um, to the popularity. Hey everybody, welcome to an exciting, this is very exciting, episode of the Haas Talks Boss, because I have with us the founders of Percona, Peter and Vadim, who are here to celebrate our 40th episode of the Haas Talks Boss. That's oh. what we're all here for, right? Yeah! No, actually, we're here to talk about Percona's 15 years, 15 years in the open source space, 15 years we've been around, 15 years um, Peter and Vadim have been, you know, looking at each other cross-eyed and funny. You know, for 15 years we've been here and we thought it would be good to get together and talk about, you know, some of the good old days, some of the reasons why Percona exists, why we were, you know, started and, uh, you know, tell you some of the things you might not be aware of. We initially started as a consulting company that we, uh, we found that customers are more likely actually interested in customers were founding us. I think first, well, now frankly, I don't remember, but let's say two, three, four years, we didn't have actually sales team on stuff. Customers were coming to us and I think he actually even building queue for us to come to them. That's and, right. And again, if you look in Percona, that's a little quiz we have what Percona stands for. It originates from performance consulting. So initially our roots were consulting where we would come to customers, fix problems and uh, 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 help them to get better experience with MySQL. Initially uh, at Percona, 
we were uh, really telling the folks, hey, you know what, you should not, uh, uh, you know, buy support. Instead, we at Percona would offer you uh, emergency consulting. Then at some, you know, little premium, you could call us uh, essentially 24 by 7 and uh, uh, get your problem solved. And especially with the startup companies, they found that to be uh, immensely attractive. And I think for us, it also was kind of very uh, interesting, right? Because you can really be a hero. Where does the next 15 years lead Percona and the industry? I think one of the things that you may be uh, getting on, I think it is a very interesting question right now, right? What do you see, see that um, integration, uh, the kind of situation of open source in the cloud and some of that kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, I don't know what, what to call that, but a lot of uh, open source companies kind of now ditching truly open source license if something mm, not so open source to protect, if, uh, protect their turf, if you will, right? I mean, besides MongoDB, we have like Elastic and Redis and a uh, number of hours uh, uh, do that, right? I mean, in, uh, in my uh, uh, opinion, uh, it is hard to predict have a market will split uh, between that proprietary software, what's kind of source available and uh, through open source. But I believe there is a lot of room and there's going to be great market for uh, true uh, open source uh, database. And that is what uh, Percona is really placing our bets on. And what uh, we want to do is to push the boundaries of uh, open source uh, uh, databases. Would we make uh, more money if you would instead do kind of commercial databases? I don't know, but uh, I I cannot don't care, right? Because there are, uh, uh, you know, many mm, uh, ways to uh, make the good money, like people trafficking and on drug trade, right? Which I also do not want to uh, go into. <laughs> well, I mean, tip number one, if you're not funny in your native language, you're even less funny in 34 different languages. So anybody who's thinking about managing a globally diverse team, take that one to heart. Exactly what you said, uh, you know, with so many different cultures represented, there's just subtle little differences. Uh, you know, I expressions that, that are common, especially in the US. Like I, I've used this one on more than one occasion. I actually spend more time explaining globally what a Monday morning quarterback is than people just getting what it's, I mean, obviously the whole team knows it now because I, I have explained it so many times, but um, those little uh, idioms, I guess, that we use don't always translate. And sometimes we just shoot right over them. So, uh, you know. Hit a home run, right? Hit a home exactly. run with this one. Hit a home you run. Know. Oh, yeah. 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 And I don't get most of the soccer references. What a either, swing and you know. a miss, you know. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. All, all of those. Um, and like you said, I, I do miss uh, elements of not having everybody in the room. I think, you know, the, the, the thing I liked about NG, well, I'll put it this way. Uh, last couple offices I've worked at uh, fell in love with these open office floor plans, which I'm going to suppress my opinion on them. But one of the benefits that they had is sort of everybody in the same area. And if two devs were talking over here and you were talking with somebody over here, you could kind of hear and say, hang on, hang on. Oh, hey, I think we're talking about 
something similar, right? And everybody swing their chairs to the middle, quick powwow, move right past whatever issue we're, we're, we're facing at the time. Um, that's, that's almost impossible right now. Like, you know, with di all digital meetings, um, we can't talk over each other. So there can really only be one conversation going on at a time. I work for a CTO named Ralph Kasuba. Um, this is back at the email delivery company. And he had this philosophy on hiring that you looked first at attitude, then at aptitude, and then dead last at ability. And that what I've learned, you know, the, the part that he left out is that, you know, the right attitude that, that I can get things done, that there is no insurmountable challenge and the right aptitude, just being able to piece together the things that I do know and apply them to a problem that I don't know, that can actually overcome the vast majority of challenges. And if you focus there, and hire those people, bring them on board, that solves an awful lot. Now, the ability is, is uh, sort of a piece of it, you know, but I think high attitude, high aptitude does a lot to overcome modest ability. So in many cases, you don't need to be a super senior, which I think that's a struggle that, that every company I've ever worked at with is just always, we need to hire the most senior of the senior of the smart of the smart. Um, but like, let's be fair, sometimes those people come with baggage in the form of arrogance and that's tough, that hurts a team. You'd rather have people with the right attitude and the right aptitude who with a little bit of investment, with a little bit of wiggle room and freedom to, to grow, do amazing things. And even I've seen that even here at Percona, you know, this is something that stuck with me since what, 2011. Uh, and I have brought it to every company that I've had a leadership role at. And I, I believe almost all of them are still doing it today. And the mission of Cora is to share and grow the world's knowledge. So um, the, at the heart of Cora is uh, questions because the question and answer is a very good format for sharing knowledge, right? So Cora is uh, trying to connect people who uh, have the knowledge and people who need the knowledge and also to bring together people with the different perspectives. And yeah, so in the last few years, you know, Cora uh, has also launched uh, uh, spaces and subscriptions which basically allow uh, people to also make some money from the knowledge that they are sharing. So we initially started off with uh, MySQL. So the users' questions, answers, they were being stored in MySQL. Um, but at that time, you know, we had not implemented sharding in MySQL. So um, we brought in HBase mainly for, um, um, say, generated data. You, you might be having offline jobs which generate some data, uh, but then you may need to access that data with very low latency from the web, uh, the product. So, um, so for, for those cases, we brought in HBase because those data sets could be large. And, and also HBase provides some of these features like time to live and uh, so on. So if you want to get rid of data you know, automatically, if they have, if it is not updated in the last week or last month or so, so HBase provides those features, and so we brought in HBase, and and of course caching is something that uh, everyone needs to do to reduce the load on their databases. So we use Memcache, and then um, Redis cache is being used mainly for the data structures that it uh, provides. What was kind of the driving factor to consider moving away from HBase? Yeah, so 
the read performance you know, uh, was one of the problems. So the machine learning related use case alchemy, you know, about which we wrote a blog post, a different blog post as well. So they were complaining about the performance issues, the read latencies and stuff. So uh, that was one thing. Then the other thing was um, uh, we were using both MySQL and HBase. Both of these are very complex and very different from each other. So practically speaking, you know, there is no knowledge or tools sharing that can happen between these two. So um, like no, nobody ever wrote a tool that works for both MySQL and HBase, right? So um, yeah, so that was uh, um, the yeah double the complexity when we hire a new engineer or even if we hire experienced engineer, you know, they may not be familiar with both MySQL and HBase. So yeah, these were the two main reasons like the, the read performance, especially the P99 performance, read performance and uh, the fact that MySQL and HBase are so different and both are complex. Yeah, If the P99 is slow, you know, uh, we may be thinking that oh, okay, only one percent requests are slow, but from the application perspective, no, it might be much larger than one percent because they are making re multiple requests and they are trying to retrieve multiple data items, right? So that's one thing. The other thing is uh, um, we have to remember that there are different users and sometimes these power users and they might be running into these P ninety nine latency issues. <laughs> So, so first of all, I would point out that getting a massive amount of contributions is a hugely pleasant problem to have. And it's one that most people struggle, or most projects struggle for a long while to get to. So the word contribution usually, like you point out, refers to code contributions, but, but there are so many other ways to, to contribute and we definitely value them. In a way, it's sort of a bit of an elitist thing to uh, define contributions as, as code contributions, but also uh, those are the most difficult contributions to uh, to deal with, both to create and to, to identify the right way of, of, of integrating. Take a look at our JIRA, take a look at, at, at the um, set of uh, ideas or plans. Uh, they are always on a spectrum between idea and, 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 and already concrete uh, definition. Uh, what you want to, to get done, so, and you can do that in two ways. One, one is you can implement it. Uh, and the other one is you can just vote for it so that others are more likely to, to, to implement it. And there's even the opportunity if you want to grow as a, as a coder that we actually have a backlog of, of pull requests. So we have a template on GitHub where one of the question, new questions is, what are you trying to achieve with your computer? Oh. And, and, this, it's so self-evident to us. What's the purpose of your code? That, that, of course, we should have been asking it all along. But now, since we've added that question, reviews are much easier to make. And it's, it's, uh, the, the process of, of getting it accepted has, has shrunk quite, quite a bit because you don't have to do any guesswork. Well, not even probably approaching, we, we have something called 10.7 uh, preview releases. So there are 10.7 zeros out there. We'll do, we're doing something new with 10.7. So, so there is not one 10.7.0 go out there and test it. No, uh, there are <coughs> 10.7.0 go out there and try them out. And, and uh, what we've done there is, is we've uh, 
uh, taken several different branches of, of, of uh, 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 and made builds out of them. So you would like have, for instance, a natural sort or S form of being two features of of uh, ten, ten seven. So natural sorting is like if you have a, a number series with uh, 10.1, 10.2, 10.3, up, up to 10.11. So if you if, if you sort that literally, then 10.1, 10.10, and 10.11 will all become will all come before 10.2. But natural sort would, would then sort it as humans do with 10.9 uh, being uh, before 10.10 and 10.11. So that was okay. the, that was the, the functionality of it. And people use JSON in their applications and and uh, yes. If you want to be fanatic about uh, the normal forms, JSON is definitely not something to put into your database. But there's a reason why people are using using JSON. And there's also a reason why people are using relational databases because you do need that. So uh, the intent here is to be fairly strict about those uh, preview releases. So so remember the Thursday three o'clock deadline. If you missed it, you won't be there. So Matter Most has a pretty active contributor base. I think in the early days, it was probably more sort of not, I think it's kind of two things. I think it was the space, right? People are always interested in communication platforms, stuff like that. That's one. I think it was the technology. I'll be honest. Like when you look back today, it's really easiest choices. But back then when we made these choices, being a Go-based server on the back end, React on the front end, like those were very new and novel choices five, six years ago. Yeah, Go go have been around for several years, but I wouldn't call it, it's nothing like it is today. It was definitely not mainstay when we made some of those decisions. So it gave and people so an opportunity to learn that. Yeah, and exactly. Right? And so copy all of our bad mistakes, right? <laughs> I think same thing, like React Native is another example. We're one of the early adopters of, of that um, as well. And like I said, I think, you know, Facebook uses a, uses us as an example of their F8 conference because I think we're one of the, the largest open source, at least, React Native projects, right? And so they have a bunch of closed source ones that they can't showcase on stage or talk about or don't, don't really want to, but ours is open source, so they can. So, so a lot of that kind of stuff as well. So yeah, I think it started off like getting lucky, having the right alignment, but then we've also like poured a ton of energy into that. Like we do a lot of what we like to call community buddies, nurturing and mentoring that. And then the, honestly, the biggest thing is just directing that audience. So we do it through like help wanted tickets, we're really good about trying to create help wanted tickets and get them published out there so people can can discover easy ways to contribute. And we even rank them or label them like, you know, easy first contribution ticket, stuff like that. I think of those things, they, and that people don't realize like that takes a lot of work. It's a lot of energy oh, to go yeah. do those things. And it's just constant energy. It's just sort of like a hum that you just have to keep doing. We, we kind of source recruits from two different areas, obviously. One is from our open source community which we love because they can already hit the ground running, all that kind of stuff. And the other is just non-open source people, right? Good people who come in through recommendations or referrals or whatever, right? And the mindset of those two, and, and there's not one or another, like, but the mindset is very different because if somebody comes from the community, they kind of understand like what needs to be helped. But the funnest thing is when I find someone who's not from community and they start working on something or doing something and I'm like, you know, it'd be great. That'd be an awesome community campaign, right? Like, Create a campaign around it. Go create 5, 10, 15 help wanted tickets and let's see what happens. And most, and it takes a lot of convincing sometimes, especially people who are not coming from the open source community. Like just, and I just, it's not like a requirement. It's not like you must do this. 
I just keep pounding them like, hey, have you tried a campaign around that yet? No, no, no. And I just keep working on it. And finally, somebody will buy it. And they'll be like, okay, we'll create a campaign, Corey. Stop bothering me. Here's 10 help wanted tickets. And then it kind of sits there. And it's kind of typically, it's like crickets, right? People are like, ugh. And I keep telling people, no, no, no. This is how open source works. You got to be kind of talking to an empty room. <laughs> like, And you got to be continuously talking to that empty room until people start showing up. And once people start showing up, they'll sit down and they'll start helping and listening or whatever. And that's exactly how our community, like our, our contribution campaigns go is exactly like that. So and it's the most amazing thing to see a non-open source person. Someone doesn't come from that background because this is the epiphany I had, right? Or, or the experience I had. And they create these campaigns. They start creating all these help wanted tickets and asking for help. And it's kind of like nothing, nothing, nothing. And then someday, one day somebody shows up and does something, right? I think you always hear, you hear from a lot of the people who have been in open source for a long time. They say, we've won, right? Like now what? Now we're, we're on top, you know, we've, we've come to a place where everyone has recognized the value of open source. Um, and I think that's true, but I think where we are now is continuing to tell that story in a way that, that, um, that brings us good citizens, right? Um, it's so hard, I think, to, uh, or it's easy to fall prey to the idea that you could provide a service model and somehow, you know, if you keep all this code to yourself, you can uh, you can make some money. The real thing is getting those people to recognize that their contribution back is a part of their, uh, you know, is a part of their edification, is a part of their reward, and and to see that as as something that is uh, that is a duty, right, a responsibility based on based on what they've done, and. And so I spend a lot of time, I think, you know, preaching that message, talking about it, but but also living it. That is a, a, a something that we have to be very careful about, right, in our world, because their opinions do run high, and there are many of them, and they don't converge necessarily. And right. one of the I see I've seen this tactic uh, from from senior leadership where someone has an has a, a really strong idea, but they don't know how to present it well, right? They don't have to yeah. know how to articulate it. And and uh, we need to be there for each other to help bootstrap those concepts and and to listen. I think, and this is what I got from Plato actually, but to listen to what I mean, not what I say. That's what positioning is all about. Actually, it's all about controlling assumptions that people make and excluding the right people. And so you want people to be able to self-select in and self-select out um, very easily. Um, what you actually, in order to do positioning right, you have to actually have to let go of what it was designed for, because here's what can happen. Um, you set out to design the best um, observability platform ever, and you integrate it with all these things. And you, um, you know, one one of the things that that you think is really important for an observability platform is that um, you it's set up during the, the, at, at the deployment phase. So it has this really tight integration into your CICD pipeline. And um, as a result, you know, it's really tightly integrated. It makes sure that all of your other observability tools are like automatically set up correctly at the deployment phase. But you think of this as like the problem you're solving is related to observability. Um, but it could turn out that the thing that you end up creating is actually not an observability tool. And that's not how other people think about it. So they might think of this as actually a, a deployment or a delivery tool. Um, and you had never thought of it 
as that. You had thought about this tool that you're setting up, you're, you're creating, and it's for SREs. And then you take a step back, you talk to the, some, the people who are actually using it, and it turns out none of them are SREs. Or, or maybe it turns out like, you know, 30% are SREs and 70% are, are somebody else. There, there's actually two sides of this, I would say. One is the type of contribution. And, and the other one is that you may feel that something is not interesting, even though it is for others. This, this second talk I was just referring to before. It was about, it was a project that we did uh, just for fun called Billion Tables Project. The idea was to see if there's a limit in terms of how many tables you can create on a database. Empty tables, by the way, like no data, just the tables, the structure. And, but at the end of the day, we submitted this talk, a colleague of mine and myself, I presented this talk at the conference. And at the end, and I start seeing like, like major contributors joining the room before I started the talk. And I was like, oh, oh my God, you know, like my second talk ever on a conference and like the main postures people are coming to listen to me. They, they, they're not so good. This is like a joke. And then when the talk finished, I, I remember one of them, uh, Bruce Mongen came to me and said, wow, this is pretty impressive. You know, like all the tuning that you did and all the way, all the lengths that you had to go and all this parallelization that you had to go just to be able to create these tables. And by the way, you found the limit that we didn't even know about it. Like, this is amazing. So whatever you feel is, so one topic is what you may not consider interesting, might be definitely interesting for others. So don't hesitate to try to share it. The other one is that, and this is probably a problem in, in the Postgres community, there's a strong bias towards praising code contributions, which are obviously awesome, and uh, not uh, putting into the same category or at least a similar category, non-code contributions. And those are critical for a community too. Be it organizing conference, creating documentation, promoting postures in your timeline, in, in, in whatever social media. Like there's so many things that you can do to contribute to a community that are non-code contributions that um, that is a little bit something you're missing. If you would ask anyone, um, is it easy or difficult to use Postgres? Actually, you may find the answer like it's trivial. Because, you know, you go in a Linux box, you Ubuntu or DVN, and you say, apt-get install Postgres, and boom. In a few seconds, you've got Postgres running on your laptop. Um, now, the question is, this is a Postgres you want to run in production? The answer then is probably no. And uh, what is the distance between this uh, very quick installation and what you run in production? And it turns out to be huge. You need to install a lot of all the components that don't come with Postgres. You need to do a lot of tuning. You need to understand all these tools to pick the right ones from the ecosystem, which ones work with which, which ones are good, which ones are not totally that good uh, to your use case, and, and to put them all together. And this is becoming an increasingly difficult problem, which it ends up requiring a lot of effort and a lot of Postgres expertise, which is not available to anyone. So in reality, Using Postgres may be considered like super simple, but running Postgres with production quality, production warranties, uh, and an enterprise ready, let's call it that, environment is quite hard. So that's, again, another barrier to adoption from, from that perspective. That's something that we really need to work on. And I'm personally trying to get hold on this problem. Um, the Postgres ecosystem is, is vast. You just, you, you, put some numbers into it, like there's so many options. And this is very good because you have a lot of options to choose from. You're not bound to the tool mandated or kind of bundled by the vendor. But it's also a problem because unless you're an expert, you don't know which one is the right one. 
and, and recent split rings yeah. and data corruption by some tools which were not maybe correct for that use case at least. And, and actually, things like Babelfish represent, in my opinion, and I could be totally wrong here, both an opportunity and a challenge at the same time. Hmm. Okay. They're an opportunity because we have the opportunity as to, to, do whatever I, uh, to do what I was explaining before, not to widen the user base, to appeal to the SQL Server community, and to significantly grow the outreach of Postgres. But for this to happen, this Babelfish project, which is considered and released by Amazon as a development branch for a future feature that would like to be included upstream, what would happen if it doesn't merge upstream? And so what happens if all these improvements that Babelfish has, which I'm sure they need a lot of policing and, and, and breaking up into smaller chunks and, and addressing them individually, but what happens if two years from today, they don't get merged upstream. They get rejected. This may happen. So then Babelfish, instead of being a future branch, may end up being a fork. Mm. And then we would have two Postgres's. Postgres and Babelfish. Another, another Postgres version. Yeah. yeah. And one is going to accept contributors on GitHub. It's going to accept pull requests. It's going to work the modern way. And so is it going to become more successful than Postgres? That would be really worrying to me. I hope that's not going to be the case. And I'm sure the community will figure the way to polish and to uh, address Babelfish as a feature that will become merged upstream as soon as possible. But we need to contemplate the option that this may also not happen.